Financial institutions are struggling to move fast enough to compete with new players. Their legacy tech and processes are holding them back. But there is an answer. Our new report, titled Rebuilding Financial Services from the Inside, is a comprehensive guide to what tech teams in financial institutions are thinking and what they want the rest of the business to understand to help them move forward. Head to bit.ly forward slash 11FS Rebuild to download it now. Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. My name is David Breer, and in today's show, what we're going to be doing is focusing on insurtechs and fintechs, and what the two industries can actually learn from each other, how can they work together, and where insurtech is actually going to be going. If you didn't know, our sister podcast, Insurtech Insider, is the go-to place to hear more about everything insurance and insurtech related, and you can find it over on 11fs.com forward slash content Or if you really want to, just search for it on your podcast provider. Uh, As it so happens, we have on the show today two of the hosts of InsureTech Insider to help us go through this narrative and talk a little bit more about what's actually happening on the industry. So to get us going, first up, we have Sarah Kachansky, who is the head of competitor strategy over at 11FS. How's it going, Sarah? How you been? I am good, thank you. It's really nice to not be in the driving seat. I get to be a passenger today. I'm really looking forward to today's show. Well, fingers crossed I don't drive us off the road here, but let's see what happens. Uh, You're looking very nice. You've had a haircut. I was just mentioning a minute ago, everybody at 11FS appears to have a haircut. And on my, you know, like lack of follically challenge, shall we say, in terms of my setup, then I just feel a bit left out, quite frankly. That's very kind of you to mention, but for listeners, and George, do not cut this out, I had to tell this crew I had a haircut, <laughs> and it's about four inches shorter than it was. In David's defence, David hasn't seen me for a while, but Nigel really should have noticed. Yeah, sorry about that, Nigel. I feel like I stitched up there a little bit. But anyway, uh, nice to see you, Sarah. And speaking of Nigel, we also have Mr. Nigel Walsh, who is Managing Director for Insurance and at Google now. How's it going, Nigel? I'm very well. Not only have I been stitched up, I've also been relegated to the back seat of the car. If Sarah's not driving and she's a passenger, I am now in the back seat firmly. So I guess I'm in the uh, in the booster seat or Chelsea. I'm not sure which one today. Let's see. I'm definitely sure you're going to be keep asking us, I'll be there yet, aren't you? It's uh, But it's uh, it's good to see you as well. I know that you've had a haircut, so I'm not going to comment on it, but, uh, but you're looking fresh anyway. So... So from a, a guest perspective, we've brought in a few people who know as much, if not more, about this industry as we do. So first up, we have David Vanek, who is the co-founder and CEO over at Anorak. How are you doing, David? Hello. Hi. I'm fine. Thanks for having me. No worries. Thanks for coming on. And uh, to, to start, do you want to tell us a little bit about Anorak to get us going? Sure. Anorak is an insurtech startup that gives everyone access to life insurance and expert financial advice. We make life insurance accessible to the mass market. And I guess it's uh, at the connection of insurtech and fintech, so I'm sure we will talk about it later. Very good. Very good. Well, lovely to have you on. And uh, last but absolutely no means least there, we have Sophie Winwood, who is an investor over at Anthemus. It's been a while, Sophie. How are you doing? I know. It's, I was saying that. It's been, it's been a real while since I've been on Fintech Insider, so really excited to be back. And this is like my favorite topic, the intersection <laughs> of Fintech and InsurTech. So, yeah. All the fun things are happening there. I just wanted to say that I got my hair cut today as well. So just especially for the podcast, you? you know. <laughs> well, well, now I feel doubly bad then. I'm off to get a beard cut after this. But in the meantime, let's talk about the, the subject matter. Because that, as you say, that intersection is really interesting, isn't it? There's loads of interesting things happening in, in insurance. There's loads of interesting things happening in, in banking. But that overlap is there's just such a flurry of activity between players and what InsurTech can learn from FinTech and what FinTech can learn from InsurTech and actually what the insurance industry can learn from banking and vice versa as well. So maybe before we get started, just to kind of delve in on a, on a couple of the, the, the stats, particularly focused on the, the UK insurtech market. Last year, so that's 2020, still not really confident that it's 2021, everybody, I'm not sure you are. I think it's because we've not had to actually write it down yet, then it's not really true. But uh, last year, 2020, UK insurtech companies received a total of investment amounting to $361 million. So that's £262 million. And that was a rise of more than 60% from 2019, according to uh, Tech Nation. Commercial mobility insurer Zigo has been the UK's first insurtech unicorn, raising $150 million 
billion, valuing the company at $1.1 billion. I mean, Sarah and Nigel, I mean, Zico seems like a uh, like a real sort of rising star. I know you guys talked about this on InsureTech Asida a couple of weeks ago, didn't you? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think Zigo is one of those um, insurtechs which is, you know, rivaling some of the success we've seen. So one of the things that, you know, when you look at the UK insurtech market, it has perhaps fallen behind or, or lagged some of, what, you know, what's been happening in the US and actually to a certain extent in Europe. Um, and Zigo is really proving, you know, proving the leader in the trend and, and, and that's showing that the UK is catching up fast. I mean, Zigo has done incredibly well and it's great to see and hopefully there will be a lot more to follow in a similar pattern. Yeah. What do you think, Nigel? I mean, it seems like the the sort of flurry in the market and the investment in the market seems to be bubbling up in quite a, a, an interesting way, just on the insurtech side to start with, but equally on that intersection as well. Yeah, if, if you think about the first half of 2020 had zero, zero net new startups. So the funding and the maturity of the organisations, I'm sure Sophie will correct me if I'm wrong, but from the research I saw, there was zero in the first half, but the funding levels, as you said, have gone up, which means... We are now seeing a maturation, I'm not sure if that's a word, but a maturity or maturing of organisations that are there. We, we saw quite a few failures. We saw a few, quite a few folks disappear last year, unfortunately, for, for various reasons, partly pandemic related, partly the business just wasn't right at the right, at the right time. But the likes of Zigo, and there's many others in this space now. I've, I've been involved with a few over the last couple of months that will announce uh, raises and rounds and whatever else. I could not be more excited for where we are and for too long, I think Sarah probably said the same thing. I always worried that the UK market, in short tech specifically, not fintech, never really raised enough at various different series. They're always, oh, let's get 500K or a million or one and a half million. Whereas if you look at the counterparts in North America, they'd be raising 10 million in pre-seed money. And I never understood why, whether it was the market opportunity or ambition or whatever else, that feels like it's now changing. Hmm. No, it's good. I mean, the money usually precedes industry change, doesn't it? But And Sophie, we'll come, we'll come to you on that one in a, in a little bit. Not that you're just the, uh, the the treasurer for the entirety of the industry on that side of things, but Anthemus is clearly you know putting a dent on both sides of, of this, this spectrum. But is there a sort of a commonality between the industries? Because, I mean, I, I feel like the sort of flurry of change that we saw in fintech initially, you know, it wasn't just about you know, capital is great, you know, capital helps. Money helps with everything, really, let's be honest. But but actually the band of brothers between InsureTech and FinTech, it feels like there's a lot of familiarity there between the the purpose, the drive for sort of changing those industries. And, you know, a lot of that, I guess, is down to incumbent organizations maybe not really being progressive enough in terms of the, the consumer experiences. But I mean, David, as somebody who's come into in insurance and, and started to make those changes and started to, you know, really be successful making that happen. I mean, what was your driving force for coming in? What was your, uh, why was this a passion of yours? So I come from the sofa world. So I come, I've, I've come a long way. I was selling sofas on made.com. So, so my passion is about <laughs> consumers and making digital experience grow very, very fast. The, I think the big difference for me between fintech and insurtech is, is consumer engagement which means that in, in fintech, you can build services that people will use on a daily basis. Insurance is a very different product, although you've got the big mammoth and you've got the regulation and you've got the same amount of capital that you need to build an insurance company. Um, the appetite of your customers for your product is very, very limited, which means that it's a challenge when you start looking at how you solve people's problems. Mm. So I think that's the big difference for me between uh, fintech and insurtech. And this is why it's taken a while before consumers got excited by some of the consumer-facing insurtech propositions that are out there now. Yeah. I mean, definitely on the insurance side of things, the level of capital that's required, and obviously the banks think they have legacy until you start looking at the reinsurance space and actually like, goddamn, you know, like, so So actually I, I get that on the process side of things, but it's interesting. I mean, you've, you've made that transition from you know, uh, sofas to insurance, like actually, but you're solving a problem, like you're solving a real customer's problem. And I, and I personally, I think that's the, the drive, which is we've seen a real rise in entrances into insurance and banking, financial services more broadly, of people who truly get how to deliver compelling, you know, customer experiences. 
And that changes the game because really it very much dramatically changes what the big incumbents need to do in both of those spaces. But I see sort of both in fintech and in tech being driven by, you know, real consumer problems. But what, what do you think, Sophie? I mean, this is obviously an area that you guys are particularly interested in as well. So what's the what's the draw for you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really, really interesting time for insurance and tech. You know, COVID has been a real accelerant in digital transformation and not being able to do a lot of things to face to face. Kind of brokers are really uh, used to selling face to face. So having to sell via these is these more digital distribution methods and also having to think about, you know, Lloyd's shut their underwriting room for the first time like, ever. And, you know, you can't do person to person underwriting. You're having to start using data and technology. So I think there are a lot of interesting trends that. I mean, I, Nigel and I have talked about this before, which is, you know, the, the financial crisis was was really the start of fintech. What is that trigger for, you know, to really catalyze insurance in tech? And I think we might have hit it in COVID. And, and the other thing, which is the, the reputational damage that happened to insurance uh, during COVID with a lot of um, policies not paying out specifically within small businesses. And now insurance are really having to react and think about their brand. So I think, in terms of the intersection between fintech and insurtech, I could talk about this for like ages, and I think there'll be more to come. But like two really interesting kind of examples that I've seen from our portfolio is is one is a, a company called Stable. They do uh, parametric products that is based on commodities, so hedging the volatility of commodities for farmers and other food distributors. And what's really interesting about them is they wanted to do it as an insurance product, but they actually had to merge a derivatives product with an insurance product to be able to facilitate a really quick and easy user experience for the consumer, but a really, really complicated backend. And now you're seeing that actually these products, that's completely intertwined fintech and insurtech. And I think we'll see a lot more interesting product development coming out of that. Mm. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? And um do customers care? Do you know, like actually to, to your point, it's like we we care because we sit on podcasts and talk about fintech and insurtech stuff and the regulators care because they regulate individual silos of financial instruments, don't they? But but arguably from a customer's perspective, like they they would prefer to be in a situation where more of this stuff is being, you know, merged to actually meet their needs without all of those gaps, like you say, between what would logically and traditionally be a, a kind of a financial instrument. That's really interesting, your point on uh, COVID as well. I mean, uh, Nigel, do you sort of share that point with with regards to sort of COVID being a an accelerant. A trigger. Yeah. And, and obviously, you know, we definitely weren't looking at uh, the financial crisis and going, well, brilliant, this is going to be great for, for fintech. And we're definitely not looking at COVID and going, well, at least insurtech's good. But it could be, as you say, that catalyst for almost the if not now, then when type moments for, for changing technology and changing structure. Yeah. Let me let me just go way back, though, because I'm going to bring this, I'm going to try and tie made.com, fintech and insurtech together. And I think the, the key thing here, though, is or the thing I keep observing is they all operate at different speeds. We all check our bank accounts daily, weekly, monthly. We don't really check our insurances unless you're fanatical about it, like probably most of us on this uh, podcast. We don't check it that often. And I think tying these things together, we're either hitching a caravan to a Ferrari, i.e. insurtech to uh, fintech, or we're trying to level them up. But I think the point about leveling up of the pandemic was actually all of a sudden this mattered. And we've jumped from specialty commercial underwriting with Lloyds of London and the room being shut down to small business to individual insurance. And, and there again, they all operate at different levels and at different paces and different speeds. So it's very difficult. It would be like comparing retail banking, wholesale banking and trading all in the same conversation. They are truly you know, generally different industries. But I do think to, to Sophie's point, the pandemic has been a, on one hand, it's been an accelerant as in everyone's now leveled up. And I actually think it's negative for the insurtech community. Negative because now everyone has the same capability. Now we're good enough inside the incumbent world where we've got to the stage of, let's call it a traditional bank offering card freezing. They just didn't do it three years ago when someone else did it, but they can do it now. Does that mean that your mum or my mum wants to go past their Humax boxes are gonna to move to a, you know, a neo bank or neo insurer? So, I do think COVID has that, has been that level up moment. What we do with it now is the big question. Do we revert back to the old world as we all, as we all head back to the offices over the next six months or so? Or do we le- use it to leap forward and go, those 
100 years of legacy that you've got are time for a change, but don't just reinvent the old world, start again from scratch. In a surprise to absolutely nobody, I disagree with Nigel. (laughs) (laughs) Why so? Um, Just because he's Nigel? No. I don't think they have levelled up. I think you're giving them too much credit. I think they have finally realised they need to level up. I think that's fair. And I think that there was a lot of heel dragging before this. And I think that this has made them realise that they do need to invest more in systems and processes and actually looking at what customers want. I think for me, the big thing about COVID is customer awareness and we're now at a point where insurers and insurtechs can really capitalise on the fact that a lot of people are suddenly going, oh my goodness, travel insurance, that's something I should really have that properly covers me. Oh my goodness, health insurance. Oh my goodness, life insurance. I mean, I'm sure David's got some stats, but I know that demand for travel insurance has rocketed because we've got this sudden awakening of on consumers and particularly small businesses as well, that all of a sudden insurance is something they need to pay attention to. And I think that will help with the coverage gap. Let's not get into a debate, no. Nigel, because I feel like we could do this all day. <laughs> no, but I think it's important, though, because actually, you know, in, in the... And, and Sophie, you, you mentioned the, the financial crisis, which is like, actually, it wasn't just the financial crisis. It was a, it was a catalyst of a number of things that led to the, the weird and wonderful environment that allowed fintech to flourish. And, and the thing that's always... I think insurtech has always lacked competition, really. It's never lacked bad ideas, but it's lacked somebody in the market making it happen. And it really, it does seem like actually post Lemonade's, you know, IPO and, you know, the impact that that has, that has had. And now we're seeing, you know, uh, real competition for customers in the market. Then actually it does feel like the tide is definitely sort of shifting on that. But I think it's it's a similar problem because, you know, we talk about this a lot with with clients. But when you look at the the banking industry, we took bits of paper and made them on a website and insurance took a 12-month policy because it was just on a piece of paper and made it a 12-month policy in a digital world. And actually, that doesn't make any sense. So I think the the principle is very similar, that we've got big incumbent organizations doing what they did in an analog world in a digitized format. And we've got digital startups coming along showing that there's actually a much better way. You know, the work that you're doing, David, is is different. And actually, it turns up the... Uh, the heat really on the existing incumbents, the existing players to, you know, compete or die, really. But I think we need to remember that the concept of bank and insurance working together, so whether you call it tech, bank, tech and insurtech working together is a very old concept. And in the UK, it never took off. But selling insurance proposition into a banking environment is something that is very common in continental Europe, in in other geographies like India. So I think we just need to reinvent how this goes forward and faster. But um, there is uh, a lot of room for that. Well, that's a, a really good point because bank assurance has not worked in the UK. But I don't think it's not worked in the UK because it's not a good idea. And I think a lot of people fail to sort of see that the execution strategy for it in most banks was awful. Like actually it was uh, insurance was fighting for basically marketing placements with people who owned P&Ls that were able to shout louder than them. So it just never, it never worked, you know. Or it ended up with PPI, which is a sort of... Uh, that doesn't <laughs> help. That, that definitely doesn't help. Yeah. Uh, was it 64 billion of fines on that one? Uh, there's, there's some things to learn, isn't there, you know? Expensive. But no, I think it's, I think it's, the industries are very, very similar. The catalysts for change seem very, very similar. But actually, I think in tech and fintech, there's huge amounts of overlap and huge amounts of think learning. The banking to to insurance and insurance to banking, you know, we we are seeing insurance companies that really think about going into banking now, and that is. That's something that we wouldn't have seen, you know, happen a few years ago. But it is fascinating and it seems like it's really poised for big change. Sophie, what do you think? Yeah, and I think that the interesting point about competition, and I'm I'm sure we were going to come and talk about this anyway, is like if you compare open banking um, and PhD2 and like how that's kind of spawned innovation and competition within the banking industry and then you look at insurance and you've not really got that that same sort of regulatory pressure and although like you say insurers are becoming more digital the whole kind of sharing of data and api and standardization is is way behind in terms of the industry and and we're really that's kind of stifling innovation because that's always the roadblock because you need to go back to the capacity provider to understand what the policy needs to be and to be able to distribute it 
And we've actually seen a, a couple of startups trying to be the sort of stripe of insurance and going and building the connections to the APIs. But the APIs just aren't even good enough yet. So I think that there is um, something that the insure tech industry needs to learn from the banking industry to enable that sort of partnerships to be more efficient and effective. Yeah. I mean, while we haven't really seen, as you say, the the sort of, you know, API economy for insurance really open up, I mean, cross-sell and upsell has been a thing, as you described before, David. You know, we have started to see, and obviously, you know, Starling probably led the way on this to, to start with in terms of marketplace banking and being able to add capability and add features. In fact, actually, David, you're part of Starling's marketplace, aren't you? Yes, we are, with, with other tech companies. And can you talk to us a little bit? I mean, obviously, don't give any of Anne Bowden's secrets away, like live on the podcast. She doesn't see that particularly kindly, and she will DM me aggressively. So, uh, but if you don't mind, like, what do you guys see the benefit of that in terms of distribution? Is there a, you know, uh, is this a, a distribution strategy that actually works alongside the, the fintech space as well? Yeah, it's it's an interesting model. It, I think it's still small, uh, so let's not make it a, a huge distribution channel even for us. But it's an interesting one because our big motto when it comes to insurtech is to meet the customers where they are in terms of distribution. And we talk a lot about embedded insurance. I talk a lot about embedded insurance journeys, and this is what marketplace is proving that you use a trusted brand like Starling and you connect people with the right proposition that they may be looking for or just trying to discover. And it's a great discovery journey for people to buy insurance product or to be connected to an analysis of their insurance need. And this works very well, particularly when you can use data. You pass data from a distribution player to a smart insurtech that uses this data to give you a very personalized outcome. It's a very interesting model. It contributes to our growth. I mean, still fairly small as a, as a distribution player, because if you are a starting client, you will know that to find the marketplace, you, you really, really need to look for it. But it's a very interesting model. What, what do you think, Sarah? I mean, obviously, that, that type of you know, aggregation of services. I know, um, you know, we've had Megan Kaywood on a number of times before, back when she was in in her Starling days, talking about the the different levels of integration. But uh, it always sort of feels a little bit like just to hand off to another player doesn't really do, you know, marketplace a real big service. But that fully integrated service into what Starling could offer that that feels like where the benefit could really come from. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree to, to David's point that, you know, Starling doesn't necessarily promote its marketplace front and center. And I think possibly that's because the full benefits of the marketplace haven't been realized yet, which would be that that sort of full embedded experience without the handoff. I think there is potential there for that model to really work. But I think we need to get a little bit further down the line where it's more of a curated service, because at the moment, having a marketplace of offerings is great. And it does bring up new brands, you know, surface new brands to me if I'm in the market for life insurance but also for whatever else happens to be in that marketplace but what we're missing at the moment is that that doesn't help me a great deal further with knowing whether that's any better for me than a another provider or not so I think there's an extra level that needs to happen there Mm. And I think that that's a combination, you know, the reason that hasn't happened is a combination of, you know, priorities. A lot of these marketplaces, you know, they have to choose where to focus. And and, and if the marketplace is perhaps a secondary offering as, offering as it may be, if you look at Starling, you know, they're concentrating on their, their, their banking offering and also their banking as a service offering and also their SME offering, then the marketplace can, you know, ha- they have to prioritize, they have limited resources. I think the other thing is possibly is that the technology, particularly on the side of the insurers, and I'm not talking about David, but I'm talking about the big insurers because some of the partners that Starling has are, are the big legacy players. It's just not there yet for them to do it. So even if you gave them all the data, they wouldn't necessarily be able to handle it. And I think maybe that's, uh, you know, I think that's where marketplaces really need to head towards. Um, we're not there yet, but that doesn't mean there aren't brilliant other distribution methods where fintechs and insurtechs are working together. I mean, I think one of the really interesting ones that Nigel and I have spoken about is Hiscox working with Free Agent. Um, now, Hiscox isn't an insurtech, but the way that they've gone about working with Free Agent, the, the accounting platform, is, is a really interesting strategy. Um, and they've put a lot of kind of effort into making making sure it is that truly embedded experience so they can pull in the data and provide a, a standard quote. Um, so I think there are definitely ways that, that, that things can work together. I just think that that marketplace model isn't quite where it could be yet. 
Yeah, I mean, having a an aggregator at the side of a thing rather than, you know, we talk a lot about embedded finance, like the benefit is when it's really embedded into an experience, isn't it? But uh, so if you got a, a view on that? Yeah, I mean, you teed me up right there. I was going to say kind of the, the kind of holy grail is to move towards sort of insurance that's that's in context presented when you need it, the kind of Example that's a bit overused is uh, Revolut and they're using GPS when you're near an airport to to ask you, like, have you got travel insurance? There are, uh, you know, examples that potentially open banking data could be used to to nudge you when you've made a certain purchase or when you're doing certain things to say, have you considered this insurance? Maybe you're buying a house or you've bought a large product. And so, you know, the move to embedded insurance, I think, is is an interesting one. It only works for certain lines of business. Um, but I think it is, you know, an interesting angle. And and I think to, to Nigel's point before, you know, do people want to buy insurance or just do people just want to feel safe or taken care of? And and actually, you know, it's less, maybe less about, oh, I've got this product, I, you know, like home insurance insurance is a really good one. Protect, just protect my home. You know, that means putting security in the insurance, you know, warranties, etc. Um, and so I think, the risk management sort of protection will become more interesting than just an insurance policy. Yeah. I mean, I, I very much subscribe to that and literally would subscribe to that as an insurance service because, you know, from from my perspective, who do I feel really protects my house? Well, it's actually Nest, I guess, Google now, Nigel, rather than... Uh, Nuggles doing a little dance for everybody on the podcast, just in case you were wondering. But um, so for me, actually, if they offered me an insurance product to protect my house, given the access of information that they would have to know that I'm taking care of my house, then that feels like that that overlap really sort of comes from it. But we'll come back to that point because no, I know you'll have a view. But but on the digital banks being a sort of a distribution point for insurance, I mean, is that is that helpful right now, or is it almost to my point earlier on around? you know, big banking doing in uh, bank assurance didn't really work out. But you almost don't want to, you don't want it to look like it's not a good idea because the demographics of challenger banks are not necessarily the people buying all the different types of insurance that you would want them to, or necessarily the the risk profile that you would need them to be given the, given the demographic, you know. So, I mean, uh, is challenger banks a good distribution point? Without doubt, yes. And I think Sarah tweeted yesterday about 700 tweets of people raising money for, it felt like seven-year-olds actually. I'm like they have no money, um, so it's the right it's the right sort of challenger bank. We all look back at Revolut's journey to what 15 million or 20 million customers now. Well, their partner of choice on insurance or, or another partner of choice they have is Chubb, and then you take a traditional incumbent huge insurer that's built a product called Chubb Studio, which is basically legacy platform, API in the middle, plug it into distribution channel, which is exactly what David and the marketplace has done at uh, Starling uh, and Anorak and elsewhere. So I think they are absolutely a requirement to enable distribution. Back to my point earlier, because they have the engagement. You joke about Nest, right? But Nest, even before I joined the firm, Nest sent me an email once a month going, here's the update from your smoke alarm. It used to be a battery that would die every four years and go change a battery. But now I've got a monthly check to go, your smoke alarms are working. How many times does your insurer email you a month? Yeah. Probably none, right? So a lot of it's around engagement. When it comes to engagement, you then link back to bank assurance. I actually think it's making a huge comeback. Now we've got to be careful how we dissect the globe because in different countries, it means different things or, or it interacts in different ways go back to Sarah's favourite territory and look at the, the Royal Commission review in Australia and banks having to sell their insurance arms. The reason that hasn't or has been challenged was one, you mentioned PPI. The other, of course, is advice and guidance, right? How am I advising your product? And David will know this much better than me versus a commodity. And I think Sarah or Sophie, you touched on this a minute ago. If it's a straightforward travel product and we can give you the key facts in a straightforward way, then it's a simple acquisition. But outside of that, if you're looking for guidance about context and what's right for you, then you do need to either have an amazing chatbot or digital experience or be have the opportunity to speak to someone that can take your insights and put them into what's right for you, either as a tied or independent person. Yeah. I mean, we were all getting excited 10 years ago when payments were doing things. like, And it was like, oh, payments, it's fintech and that's great. But it's like, what about actual banking? And really, in insurance, what we've all almost sort of seen is like the, 
digital's caught on on distribution, but it hasn't really caught on on the bit that's really important, which is like owning the product or servicing the product. And really, that was what Lemonade was doing differently was it wasn't just how you bought it. It was about how you managed it. Your point around, you know, uh, when I was a, a big insurance company before I went to a big bank, I would have killed for like retail banking engagement because actually I only saw my customer every year. Uh, and that was usually when they were upset about their premium. So it's like, actually, you needed to see them more frequently to create a, a relationship with people to be able to, you know, better serve them. Um, so I think there is uh, almost, uh, again, it feels like history sort of repeating itself a little bit. But I think with the the trodden ground that we've seen in the fintech space, hopefully InsureTech can can learn from that and do better as, as well in terms of the, you know, what the next chapter is. But Sarah, any thoughts on, on the last part of that? Because I, I know, uh, I mean, we've talked a lot about retail, but obviously from an SME perspective and, you know, Sophie from a embedded everything in an SME perspective as well, then, you know, there's so much in that space for, for the SMEs, isn't there, Sarah? Yeah, no, absolutely. I always think SMEs are perhaps a better place to start when you're talking embedded insurance because they're much more likely to have somewhere that they go to already for all their services. So I mentioned free agent, but you could replace that with zero or, or Intuit QuickBooks, you know, any one of those platforms would work. Even, you know, Square, you know, you, you already go there as a small business. That's where you go for your payroll, for your invoicing, for your supplier management, for your accounting, all of those things, you you already go to that place. So why not add one more service in there? And particularly, you know, given that those companies are modern companies, new companies who have an awful lot of data about you and know how to handle it, they should be prime for being able to recommend you insurance products that suit your needs. And, you know, Denaja's point about, you know, engaging, you you will engage with that platform, if not every day, at least once every couple of days, if you're a small business, because it's how you run your company. So it's the perfect place for it. You know, I think Cover Genius are doing some really interesting things in this space um, over in the States. Their, their, their Quake product they just launched with QuickBooks Intuit is really fascinating. And it's, it's a specific product that fills a specific client need in a specific region that has been created based on data they've gathered. So if I was looking at, you know, potential success places or potential places where embedded insurance will really take off first, then I would suggest SME, but I'm going to hand over to Sophie because she knows a lot more about this than I do. That is not true, Sarah. You know a great deal about this. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I just wanted to kind of shout out one of our portfolio companies because I think they've they've made a really interesting transition from sort of insurtech to fintech and kind of the divide, which is a company called Hokodo. And they started off providing single invoice insurance on B2B marketplaces. So, you know, protecting against a risk of a default and have now started to offer a sort of buy now, pay later product to those customers. So what's really interesting is you're seeing either fintech companies going in with a fintech wedge and then offering once you've got your customer, you know, you've got the brand and reputation and they know they trust you, then you build out the product and you go into insurance or you wedge in with an insurance product and you build out into fintech products. And I think that's like Sarah said, SME actually is is a really interesting place to start, especially as a lot of the data is is already digitized through these accounting platforms and banking data. I mean, that's that's fascinating, and and I think the the trust point I'm going to come back to in a second. But speaking of interesting transitions, I'm going to transition to a break. Back in a second. Eleven FS is supported by Banking Circle. Connect to the fastest, most cost efficient, and transparent payment solution available in the market. Trust in financial services has been increasing, but with trust in technology companies decreasing and the pandemic accelerating the shift to digital financial services, it's more important than ever to actively build and maintain trust. In association with MyTech, we've launched a report that explores the current trust issues facing financial services brands and how they can be overcome. Head to bit.ly forward slash digital trust report 2021 to download it now. So just to pick up, Sophie, on that on that trust point then, because I think it's sort of almost fundamental to everything, isn't it? Really, you know, keep going back to the point on the, the fintech side. But actually, I think the the opportunity was was there because of that almost a, a bit of mistrust, like you say, from the financial crisis. And actually, you know, maybe with everything that we've seen, as you said, with the new crisis, with uh, with everything that's happening with COVID, then is that crisis of trust why InsureTech potentially has more of an opportunity to acquire customers? Trust is such a, you know, shades of grey, but do the normal people on the street trust InsureTechs enough yet 
in order to take those types of recommendations from them. And I guess what is the the course of you know the activity that sort of gets them there? I, I I often I think every time I talk about insurance, I end up talking about compare the market and meerkats because it's like it was just above the line spend that got them into the mainstream psyche. So. Is this just the cycle maturing a little bit and then people, they'll be trustworthy because they're sponsoring a football team or they've got a, you know, a TV advert? What do, what do you think, Sophie? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question and I don't think it's one that I'm going to be able to answer, I'm afraid, but it's... <laughs> Come on, crystal ball. You've Sorry, got, you've crystal, got a crystal ball. Right, right. So I'm peering into my crystal ball. So I think that the reputational damage that has been done to insurers through COVID will have an impact of people looking for something else and something that, you know, another brand that they can kind of hold on to. But I think the interesting thing is around the prevention aspect of it. So a really good example is Vitality Health Insurance, right? So they are there to really keep you fit and healthy. And people love that brand because you get a free pair of trainers a year and you get a, you know, a discount on your gym subscription. And and really it's like, it's the idea that you're kind of building around someone's lifestyle and helping them do things that will make them a better risk. And I think if you can apply that to other methods or, or, or other policies or types of insurance, then you will start to build. You can't just expect them to be like, well, we don't trust the big insurers. Our trust has to go somewhere. Let's put them in the insurtex. Like that trust obviously has to be gained. And that I think is done just through more understanding of how people live and how they can support and help. Yeah, I think Vitality are a really good example of a service-led insurance company, you know, because they are all, as you say, about managing you know, reducing your risk, but managing your life rather than just flogging you some insurance products. This is not an advert for Vitality, just in case anybody was thinking. But I mean, Nigel, what what do you think on that basis? Because, I mean, trust is quite multifaceted, isn't it, in terms of what it really means? Do you think there is enough trust in InsurTechs? I mean, David, I'm definitely going to come to you on this one because clearly your customers trust you, but we'll come to you in a second. But Nigel, do you think there is enough trust in the market? Yes. And I'm, it's contrary to what Sophie said. And I'll share a, in, in a piece of work my old shop did, the survey they had done said something along the lines of trust in insurance during the pandemic had not declined. And you can read that in two ways. You can read it in, okay, that's positive. Or they never trusted us in the first place. <laughs> so you, you can read it in either way. But if you ask the younger Nigel, did you expect to bank with someone called Starling or Monzo or a brand new organization that didn't exist 10 years ago or a life policy with Anorak or Lemonade, brands that didn't exist? I would have probably said no, but equally we're curious and we're okay to try these new things. So. I was dealing with a financial institution the other day that sent me impossible communications in a format I couldn't read. And I just said to them, you know what? It's not worth the hassle. I'm not going ahead. So the ease of use was a massive thing. If I go to Anorak, if I go to any of the new fintechs or insurtechs, one thing they worked on straight away seemed to be ease of use. And I think that's where the digitization and leveling up, back to Sarah's point, in some cases, that's a fair point, I guess, hasn't come true. If they don't get that right, we won't, not that we won't trust them, we just can't be bothered. Yeah. I mean, uh, David, from your perspective, obviously you've you've entered the market, you're establishing a brand in the market and gaining trust from the, you know, the general public is is a big part of being able to distribute your product. So, I mean, how, how have you gone about that? What's been the, the approach? It's always the same, the same challenge, no? The first, you have no money, so the brand is the experience. And you, as, as Nigel said, you aggregate the, the early adopters and you, you, you try to, to make a good job at what you do. And then, and then you, invest, you need to invest in this brand and on different channels. And I think trust doesn't come naturally. <laughs> and it comes with a, a lot of sweat and a lot of cash that you need to be able to invest to accelerate. And I think uh, in short, insurance starts with a, a default lack of trust, uh, which make it even harder, I think, to gauge interest in people. But I think the process is not different from any other um, consumer market. Yeah. Do you think, and, it, and I'd be interested in your view, particularly on this one, then, David, do you think, back to my point a second ago around, really the the industry insurance has sort of been commoditized, uh, uh, rightly or wrongly, in certain slices of, of the industry because of aggregators. So whereas banking 
sort of hasn't been in that sense because banking is more about, you know, with savings or mortgages, it's more about having it than it is buying it. Is there a little bit of almost like we need to re-educate, I think, a little bit around what good insurance is and actually what being covered means and the things that you actually need to be sort of looking for uh, in the insurance space, and and that for me actually is a is an opportunity for insurtechs because actually if you're if you're seen to be uh, helping the community and being a little bit more virtuous in terms of the ways in which you're establishing those things in the way that actually I mean Sophie Vitality is a really good example because for all of the things that they do then actually it should reduce their revenue rather than increase their revenue in terms of the things that they do, but it works in their model. So, I mean, David, is, is that a, do you think that's a challenge within tech that maybe fintech doesn't face? I think distribution is a challenge. So if you take a, a great company like Marshmallows, great product, they distribute on price comparison website as well. So it, you need to build a, a great product, but then distribution, you'll just use the what people want to use. And we've done extensive research when building Anorak on people using price comparison website because we were thinking like very naive, candidly, we're going to reinvent the way because people are very keen to better understand their insurance. And they don't care. I mean, on general insurance, really, they want a commoditized, well-priced proposition that they can buy online easily. And if it's a great product like, like Marshmallow or, or, or Zigo, great. But if it's a crap product, they won't buy it. But distribution is always a challenge. And life insurance is a bit different because people don't even, they care even less than that. Just a very quick one on that. I would also say we are in a very mature market in the UK. Absolutely. And I'm learning rapidly about the North American market and other areas as well in much more detail about how, how I'm going to say how lucky, but how mature the UK market is when it comes to PCWs or digital distribution and all that sort of good stuff because other areas of the world that I'm engaging in right now seem far behind or reluctant to move away. Yeah, or did a better job at controlling the distribution. I mean, I'm talking about the, the carriers. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. I, th- I think the, the places that are generally further behind, it's because the stranglehold of the incumbent players is stronger. And actually, I know, Sarah, you love the Australian market, but the Australian market, the Canadian market particularly, I think have been really bad in this space for really almost controlling the market in not quite monopolistic kind of ways, but actually in a way that actually reduces competition, which is ultimately not a great thing for customers, is it, Sarah? Yeah, no, it's been hugely problematic um, in Australia on all financial services, you know, whether it's banking or or insurance, they have um, very few companies that just, you know, run the market. And one of the advantages that Australia had talking about the financial crisis is that they didn't really have one. So when the rest of the world was trying to pick up the pieces and put the banks back together and bail them out and the banks had to sort of sit there with their tails between their legs, in Australia, a lot of the financial services companies, because they managed to largely avoid recession just sort of carried on rolling. And what that meant was that they could invest in their services. So if you were trying to launch, for example, Monzo in Australia, you would have found that it had feature parity with the apps that the big banks already had there. And to a certain extent, that's true of insurance as well, although arguably insurance is further behind banking because I think that's just a fact of life. Um, <laughs> I've yet to be convinced otherwise on that. But yeah, I think the dominance of big players in that market has has really hurt it. And I think the interesting thing about the UK market, of course, is that, as you say, we're quite unusual in that we have price comparison websites, but also unlike a lot of the rest of Europe, we don't use brokers. Now, brokers can act in the place of a price comparison website in in some places if you're looking for that point of contact that consumers go to to look for the product. But obviously, the difference there is that Exactly to David's point, a price comparison website will drive you almost always towards the cheapest product. But it's just generally what happens. Unless you have very specific needs, unless you know you need A, B, C, D, E covered, you will look for the cheapest. You know, where you can build loyalty there, I think, is when you actually buy that product. And as David says, it turns out to be a much better experience. You're more likely to think, okay, when renewal rolls around, I'll stick rather than twist, particularly if sticking doesn't come with a penalty of an extra 300 quid a year or whatever ridiculous fee it is that insurers seem to just chuck on out of, out of you know the blue, even though your circumstances haven't changed. Um, yes, sorry, I went off on a bit of a tangent there, but yes. <laughs> well, rant over. Uh, that would definitely answer my question, though. That was good. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. I guess if we, if we maybe turn you know, turn our, our future to a little bit further forward in terms of like, where where are we going to go with this? As you say, Nigel, I mean, different geographies are operating in slightly different, you know, time zones or, you know, 
generations of, of, of progression on, on that in the way that I, I guess uh, evolution has evolved differently in different geographies as well. And that's kind of what we're seeing is almost the, the new startups are having to evolve very differently to, to suit those different needs and different players in those different markets. But what do you think is going to happen going forwards here? Are we going to see big insurers competing heavier with insurtechs in terms of capability, functionality, technology? Are we going to see big banks getting into insurance? Are we going to see insurance getting into banking? Like, Actually, all of these things are sort of on the table at this point, given the point in the market we're at. So, you know, crystal ball out again. Where, where do you think this is going? I've just nicked uh, Safi's crystal ball. The one thing you didn't mention was, and I've used this example before, Who's going to build it first? Are the ins- are the motor manufacturers going to build an insurance company before the insurance company start building cars? As an example, now we know the answer to that. I'm pretty sure we know the answer to that. We've seen plenty of examples, but I also think we've seen enough affinity partnerships over the years. I.e., hey, company X partners with company Y to be the exclusive provider of something. I think we're going to end up with a marketplace of marketplaces, and what I mean by that is. We're going to see Anorak on lots of different places. We're going to see Starling embedded into some of the insurance ones. And it's almost going to be cross-fertile. I don't know what the word is. It's almost going to be everyone's available everywhere. And the real shift isn't product or function. The real shift is finally a shift back to customer. I can't not do a podcast without saying cake, right? So we keep getting all these ingredients, but we actually just want the cake. So actually now we're going back to David's life of it. And I, I go back to my favorite ad from John Lewis, um, Always a Woman, 2010, which basically shows as I go through childhood, through school, through teenage years, through dating, becoming a mum, pa- parent, grandparent, etc. How do I be there for you every stage of your life? Not keep having to switch product by product by product. And if we have the insight, we have the data, we have the capability to engage then frankly, we should be rolling up the things that matter most for you at that point in time. So I think it's got to be a shift away from product and a shift back towards consumer or customer. No, I agree with, I agree with that. And it sort of rolls into the trust point we were making earlier on. It's who is going to be best positioned to be that point of trust and point of distribution. But D- David, where, where do you think the, the industry is going then? Are we going to see much more collaboration? Are we going to see uh, more of a, a, you know, has COVID been that acceleration point for, for InsureTech and, and FinTech together? Uh, where do you think we're going? I think there is, there is definitely, to Nigel's voice, uh, much more intrication between to serve customer. I think for me, the next lemonade is Revolut. I think you, you'll see in a in, in few months month what they are cooking in insurance, and it's going to be huge uh, because they basically beheaded one of the biggest insurtech in Europe to build their own MGA company. So, yeah, I think definitely it's converging. Very good. So that's foreshadowing, foreshadowing. Look forward to see, hearing more about that. Uh, Sarah, what do you think? Where, where are we going with the industry? I think, you know, it's already been touched on today, but I think we're going more towards holistic services that protect rather than cover, if that makes sense. So we're going more towards the idea that, you know, it's another point about buying a product from me, I'm buying a service and that service is, to your point, David, home protection or family protection or, you know, car just a car and the car comes with all the things, the financing and the insurance and the MOT and the automatic thing that calls the, you know, the light goes on on your, on your dashboard and you've got to actually get a phone out and call the garage and get them to actually find an appointment and then you've got to book it and you've got to put it in your own calendar. Why am I doing that? The car can do all of that for me. So moving towards that kind of holistic proposition and I think that's where you get the convergence of the fintech and the insurtech working well together because the funding comes from an insurtech, the insurance comes from an insurtech and then you've got kind of a holistic service provider that wraps that all up and everybody gets to focus on what they're doing well and me as a customer I just get exactly what I want which is a car that is safe that runs or a house that is safe that you know I can keep paying a loan back on and actually I'm not paying too much because I've got some clever thing that's also switching my bills for me whilst checking I haven't got a flood and my contents is insured I think that's where we're moving I'm not sure we'll be there anytime soon but I think we're starting to see elements of that come together yeah. I mean, there's this, if anybody's listening, there is at least 17 good startup ideas that Sarah's just given you there. So uh, feel free to uh, jump on those ones. Cut Sarah in, though, would be my advice. It, it, it's only fair. Yes, please. So, Sophie, where do you think we 
we're, we're going with it? Is it a sort of interwoven service as, as Sarah has described? Yeah, I think, you know, that is the dream. And I think, I guess my kind of two cents would be on the short to medium term, what needs to happen, which is already happening already is, is just more kind of opening up of data, digitizing of incumbents so that these partnerships can just work better. And I think the easier that the ecosystems, which we've seen from fintech really, is the easier that the ecosystems can interact and data can change, then then the, the better these services can be for the end customer. And so I still think there is work to be done in, in the short to medium term um, around that piece. I think for, for me, uh, I mean, I agree with everything you've all said. You know, I think we're seeing technology change the industry. I think we're seeing regulation have an impact. I think we're seeing competitors change the industry. I think we're seeing new players getting and teach the old dogs some new tricks. And that's great. I think fundamentally, the thing that hasn't changed through all of this is, is, is as all of you have said, is that customers just don't give a god damn anything about financial services like we do they as all of you have said they just want to be comfortable doing what they're doing and feel like they've got somebody as from a providing them with services that is on their side and actually i think the organizations who are doing really well are the ones that are tapping into that and and providing it and at the moment it's quite simplistic but i really subscribe to sarah's point of the future of where people want to get to is something that's where companies are taking care of them rather than insurance being something that they have to take care of so uh, I guess on that note, we probably should wrap up. I know, Sophie, you've got another three hours where you could talk about open banking and embedded finance. Uh, and Nigel, I know you, you can talk about everything forever, <laughs> which is great. But we're going to have to wrap this one up now at this stage. So uh, thank you so much for joining us today, everybody. Uh, really, really appreciate you guys making the time. Uh, where can you find a little bit more about you, Sophie? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Sophie Winwood. My email address is sophieanthemus.com. If any interesting startups are tackling any of Sarah's big ideas, would love to speak to you. Please give Sarah some advisory shares on site. And yeah, if you want to find more about Anthemus, we're at anthemus.com. Very good. Uh, David, where can people find out more about you and Anorak? So you can find more about Anorak on LinkedIn, Anorak Technologies. And uh, you can email me if you want to talk about Revolute, <laughs> david.vanek, V-A-N-E-K, at anorak.life. Very good. Nigel, where can they find a bit about you and Google? I mean, I guess Google it at this <laughs> stage, right? But I should say, let me Google that for you, but I probably shouldn't because it's a very funny site. I'm on Twitter at Nigel Walsh, and I'm usually comparing notes with Sarah about people on scooters at six in the morning with lights and no helmets or something ridiculous like that. Very good. And Sarah, where can people find a little bit more about you and a thousand other startup ideas I'm sure you've got? <laughs> well, other than uh, hosting InsureTech Insider or indeed FinTech Insider, sometimes um, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Very good. As for me, you can find me knocking about on LinkedIn predominantly. So find me over there. Thank you so much for listening today. If you do like what you've heard, then subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps the audience find us and helps us make the show a little bit better as well. Also, if you have enjoyed listening to all of the stuff about insurance and insuretech, then why not give InsureTech Insider a listen? As we mentioned earlier on, you can find it over at 11fs.com forward slash content, or if you just search for InsureTech Insider on your podcast client. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on, I think, pretty much everywhere on social media at this stage, um, or you can just email us on podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you had fun. I know we have. Goodbye. Goodbye.